Job chapter 30. Um, we're, we're in the middle of these three chapters from Job, 29, 30, and then 31, uh, where Job is kind of given his last speech. It's his last statement. Um, it's his meditation, and at the end of this, he's basically going to say, I don't have anything else to say. Um, we'll hear the young guy, Elihu, speak for several chapters, then God's going to intervene before we get to the end of the book. And uh, you might remember that, that the way these chapters are structured is pretty interesting. Uh, chapter 29, Job was looking at his past. Uh, chapter 30, he's looking at his current condition. That's where we'll be this morning. And in chapter 31, he meditates on how he doesn't deserve any of this. And it's kind of another defense of his integrity. I'm suffering in a way that I, I don't deserve to suffer. It's puzzling pain. And as we look at those chapters, we really see Christ, and almost in a reverse way. So Job's thinking past, present, and this is what it used to be also. And then with Jesus, though, chapter 29 was pointing ahead to what it will look like in his ultimate reign. Chapter 30 is his time on the cross, and we'll be able to see that pretty clearly this morning. And then chapter 31 matches with Job, and Jesus was an innocent sufferer. He was the spotless lamb. And so we're in chapter 30, and, and this morning we get to see Job suffering in the present one more time, uh, Job describing it, and, and yet the overlay, the filter of it is so clearly Christ uh, on the cross as well. And so Job is pointing us to what we would understand about Jesus. And maybe I want to help us understand it a little bit the more, this way this morning, uh, trying to get value out of suffering, trying to make sense of the pain that we're going through. Why am I experiencing what I'm experiencing, and is there any point to the pain that's going on in my life right now? It's a pretty constant theme for humanity. Give me some worth to this. Give me some value to this. Make some sense of this for me and help me to think through it that way. And nothing seems to add to our afflictions or to our pain than suffering that seems pointless or without hope. Cameron here lost his driver's license on a hunting trip. And so when he got back from his hunting trip, he got a new license. He was surprised because it didn't list him as an organ donor, something he had wanted to do ever since he was a child. He talked to his mom, Sarah, about it, told her he'd get around to taking care of it. Uh, she said absolutely. She understood that was her son's desire and his wishes. Two days later, he was in a horrific car accident and was brain dead. Two days after that, they removed him from all life support. His mother knew his wishes, even though it wasn't on his donor card. And so Cameron's liver saved the life of a mother of five who was struggling from fatty liver disease as a result of her fifth pregnancy. His heart beats on inside of a man who spent 11 months in the hospital waiting for some glimmer of hope as hope faded, and then finally there's this transplant of this powerful, strong heart of a young man. His kidney revived a woman who had been on dialysis for years because of organ damage sustained after her body's natural immune response to severe burns that she had experienced. Her doctors weren't hopeful she'd find a match at all, and Cameron's kidney was a perfect match. With his cornea, his tissue donation, Cameron improved the lives of 18 more people all across the country. His mother lives with the heartbreaking ache of having lost her son, and yet she's comforted, knowing the loss of his life has given life and hope to others. The Christian life itself is so much about a mingling of joys and sorrows. When we lose a loved one as a believer, someone that we also is confident to save, we experience heartbreaking loss, and yet we don't grieve as those with no hope because we know we will see them again in glory. This is just not going to work. Uh, the camera helps me stay tied right here anyway, so... Um, we go through trials with sorrow, and yet we do so with joy, knowing God is at work in us and through us, hoping even for the truth of Paul in Corinthians, where he says we comfort others with the same comfort we have received. We go through sorrow in doing God's work. You might even think of Nehemiah, with all the opposition from within and without, the seeming failures of people to respond rightly, and yet he says the joy of the Lord is his strength. Nothing captures this mingling of joy and sorrow like the cross. As a line from the song Sorrow by the band Sleeping at Last says this way, it is through deep sorrow we learn what joy means. Jesus endured suffering with all of its sorrow and pain for the joy that was set before him in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it tells us. What joy? <laughs> what joy could there have been with what he was experiencing on the cross? The joy of glorifying the Father. 
by transforming lost, hurting, lonely, sinful, and dead people into living, holy, accepted, healed, and saved people. Job's meditation on his suffering can point us to Jesus' suffering this morning. In that process, I want us to understand that God wants to do a powerful work in our lives. The reality is redemptive suffering makes cruel mockers into compassionate ministers. Job's suffering does something profound to the people around him, and it reveals things about the people around him. Suffering reveals not just things in the life of the person going through the trial, but everyone else impacted by that trial. Jesus' suffering reveals things, but it doesn't just reveal, it has the power to transform. And so this morning we want to ask in our own hearts, as people in our sinful state who are prone to mock, can God do a work in us through the power of the cross to make us into compassionate ministers? And we can, we can work through this kind of like we did last week in the sense we want to look at it through the life of Job, and then we're going to see it very clearly through the life of Christ, and then we'll apply it to us, this, our own hearts this morning. So we're going to look and see what Job and his pain, and there's kind of three rough sections to chapter 30. And the first one is how he's mocked by the worthless. Now, I just want to prepare you. He says a lot of, of things about these people that are making fun of him. And who are these people that are mocking him? And he's going to talk a lot about their character, but there's a few clues to us in the passage. While he's not talking directly about his friends that have been there, certainly their behavior is pictured in some of this. And so if we were to actually ask the identity of these people, uh, largely they are the kids, the children of other worthless people that live in the community. The kind of people that never work, the kind of people that you can't trust, the kind of people that are up to no good, the kind of, the kind of person that uh, you're like stranger danger and why are they around. And uh, it, the kind of person, if you looked out your, your window and you saw this person standing next to your car, and it looks like they might even try to be breaking into your car. They're the children of those kind of people. Uh, grown up, old enough to say things. Uh, they, they, they have been raised in a, in a broken environment, and they themselves are also broken. You can grow up in a broken environment and not result in brokenness because Jesus can rescue you. But you can also grow up in a broken environment, and all you do is perpetuate the same kind of brokenness. And that's who these guys are. And so they're young people. They make up songs about him. They throw rocks at him. They mock Job incessantly. Uh, it, they're the kind of people that, that they are powerless. And so to have somebody else that's suffering more than them gives them a sense of power. They're bullies at their core. Insecure and selfish people. And so that's kind of their identity, but, but who are they as Job describes them? Well, Job chapter 30, I'm going to read down through all 14 verses, then we'll just tease out some of the, the key aspects of it. But now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained, to set with the dogs of my flock. What can I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? Through want and hard hunger they gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick saltwort in the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together. A senseless, a nameless brood, they've been whipped out of the land. And now I have become their song. I'm a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my presence. On my right hand the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come, and amid the crash they roll on. First, first, he complains about their youth. He marks out that these are young people, men who are younger than I. It's a way of communicating that they have a total lack of wisdom. In Job's day, and even in our day, we tend to think of folks as they get older gaining wisdom. Uh, the Proverbs even talks about the white-headed hair person and having wisdom, and you should get wisdom as you get older. And, and Job's friends always spoke from the oldest to the youngest when they addressed him. Elihu, who's about to speak, will say he's been apparently sitting there watching this whole scene uh, that has been going on for some days and weeks now. He says, although they'll be the youngest, now i got to start speaking. So for Job to say they're younger is a way of saying they have no wisdom. They're foolish. 
uh, as, as, all, as though he looks at them and says, what good do you have to say to me? These are people who have no real understanding of pain, trauma, suffering, or grief. And yet they speak into Job's and they speak at Job as though they know and understand what Job is going through. What makes it even more galling to us is that as Job describes these people, they deserve all the things they suffer because it is the right consequence of their behavior. Job is suffering when he's not deserving it at all. So it's a little bit like someone who will mock the victim who's already a victim themselves because they deserve it. It's almost like somebody would be suffering on the cross because they're a thief, mocking someone who's on a cross who doesn't deserve to be there. That's their mockery. They look at Job, they see his greater suffering, and so they have the same system. Do bad, get bad, do good, get good. So they see Job suffering really, really badly, worse than themselves, and so they assume Job must be worse than themselves. So they're glorying in Job's downfall. Secondarily, Job goes after their heritage. He says he would have disdained their fathers. What could he gain from the strength of their father's hands, men whose vigor is gone? Why does he go after that? Like, you people are young and you don't know what you're talking about, and your dads are worthless too. That just seems harsh. How does he say that to them? Why does he say that? Because Job is saying they don't have wisdom that they would get from living life, and they don't even have the kind of wisdom you'd get from a good teacher or a good parent. There's so many things I'm sure that many of us are thankful that our parents have taught us. Uh, the, the things that they showed us. Every one of us would have had parents that have certain gifts and abilities. People that have God put in our life. And maybe it's for you it wasn't a parent. Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a kind neighbor. Maybe, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a children's church teacher. Some of the people that had the deepest impact in my life were just faithful servants in the church and teaching my Sunday school class year after year after year or children's church or Boys Brigade, it was kind of a Christian version of the Boy Scouts that I went to for several years. Youth leaders, people, maybe it was a, a professor at a school. Maybe it was a grandparent, an aunt or uncle, somebody that's poured into you. And Job is saying, not you guys. You don't have the wisdom that comes from age, and you haven't even had anybody instruct you well. Didn't your mama teach you better? It's kind of the attitude toward them. Thirdly, verses 3 through 8. Job goes after the usefulness and their relationship to the community. Uh, you see what they pick for food. They pick salt work. That's worthless. The leaves of bushes, the roots of the brim. These guys are like hunter-gatherers. But why? Why are they hunter-gatherers? Notice they're driven out from the community. They're shouted after as a thief because these guys are not really willing to work hard for a living. They're not willing to put in the labor required to make a paycheck. They want it easy all the time. Several years ago, I, I went on a journey to try to, as best I could, understand homelessness. And so I read a number of books about homelessness. I read, about, I read books from people who ran shelters, who ran homeless shelters, read books uh, from folks that ran recovery centers, ran, read books from people that used to be homeless, people that are currently homeless, why they're homeless, how are they homeless, homelessness, because I just wanted to try to wrap my brain around it as best I could without choosing to try to live homeless myself. That holds no appeal to me. And what was surprising to me is when I look at, when we look at the blight of homelessness, even in our nation, lots and lots of people are homeless for situations that they could not themselves choose otherwise. Uh, grown up and, and released out of a foster care system or grown up in a household that was of homelessness or in a household with parents or no parents who um, are, have a substance abuse issues or addictions. And, and so lots of people are homeless that way, but it's something like less than 10%. Lots of people are homeless because of financial disaster that came upon them. They could not help it. They had some medical issue. They couldn't work any longer, couldn't pay their bills, got in over their head, something happened, housing bubble, whatever, and they're homeless as well. That was, that was a minority. The majority have mental health issues and can't receive the care that they need. But very close to the majority of homeless people. I don't remember the percentages now, so I don't, I don't want to give that number. But it was, it was really close were people that, frankly, just that's how they wanted to do life. Now, that's shocking to somebody who owns a home and works a job. 
but they didn't want to work for somebody else. They wanted to just do what they wanted to do. And it was easier to sit on a street corner asking for money than to go get a job. Now, and that makes it hard when you want to minister to homeless people because we want to be righteous. And so I'm not, I'm not going to preach this morning about caring for the homeless, but my point is this. There is a group of people in our nation that don't want to work for anything. There's, frankly, even people that aren't homeless that don't want to work for anything. Right? They, everybody just wants the next thing handed to That's who these people are. It's not that there wasn't land that they could have worked. It's not that there weren't jobs they could have had. Job hired people all the time. Job, care, Job cared for financially people that didn't have means or maybe were in a health affliction or been orphaned or whatever. Job was generous to all these folks. But these kind of guys are the guys that are run out of a town because they're always up to no good. And the gullies of the torrents they must dwell in holes of the earth and of the rocks. They won't even build a shelter for themselves. They just live in the... You want know, you know who the original cavemen are? It's these guys. Among the bushes they braid. It's like a donkey. Under the nettles they huddle together. A senseless, a nameless brood. They've been whipped out of the land. They're not helpful. They're not productive. They're lazy. Verses 9 through 14, they increase Job's sorrow. They keep coming like an ocean wave, he describes them. Amid the crash, they roll on. They seize on the fact that God has reduced Job to nothing, and they add their voice to his pain. Job referencing their youth makes it unmistakable that he wasn't really targeting his friends here, but the implications are still the same. Have these people helped Job or hurt Job? Have they comforted or condemned? Have they been quick to hear or quick to speak? You would have tended to think somebody that's suffering the way these guys are, they're an outcast of the community. They are just scrambling around to try to survive day to day. They don't even have a place to live or to lay their head. You would have thought that they would have been compassionate to Job, but they're not at all. They just judge him in his suffering. Coming to grips with suffering and grief is mandatory if we're going to speak life to the hurting, hope to the hurting, truth in a loving way. Simply experiencing suffering in our lives is not enough. These guys have suffered. Paul calls us, though, to minister comfort to others with the comfort we've received. But what if you haven't received that comfort? What if you've never suffered so you've never tasted comfort? What if you suffered in a way that, mis that you misinterpreted your experience? God's against me. God hates me. I'm bitter against God, and so I reject him like Job's wife. Curse God and die. What if you didn't take the comfort and taste the comfort that God gave because you didn't like it? You don't like the fact that God's comfort for you is this world is not your home and that you're a stranger passing through and that in eternity he's going to vindicate you and he's going to make all things right and that he loves you and he cares for you and he's called you as his child to walk through this life like Jesus does. And that means taking up your cross. What if that's some of the comfort from the Spirit? What if some of the comfort from the Spirit is simply being able to put one foot in front of the other and do the next right thing, and that wasn't enough for you, and you were bitter or angry about that? You resented the fact that God said, my grace is sufficient for you. What if that's the way you dealt with comfort? Bertrand Russell once said, the whole problem with the world is fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves and wiser people so full of doubts. It's a little bit like if you're in school and you have a classmate volunteer to look over your paper. Hey, here, let me help you out. You're like, oh man, that'd be helpful. I really hope that my book report, my, my rhetorical paper goes well and you give it to them and they, they mark it off and they hand it back to you and then later, out, you, later on you find out all they ever get in English class are Ds. It's like the blind leading the blind. I'll never forget my, my older brother going through algebra class, and he wasn't doing well in algebra class. I think he wasn't paying attention. He's always been way better at math than I was. And my dad told him, well, you need to get a study buddy. So I do have a study buddy, Leroy Birch. I'll never forget this kid's name. Bright red hair, lots of freckles. Leroy Birch, who's my brother's friend. And my dad said, what's Leroy getting? I think my, my brother probably had a C in the class, something like that. Leroy had like a 68. I'll never forget that number because my dad kept yelling, 68? 68? You're getting help from the kid with a 68? He's an anchor dragging you down. I remember my dad saying, you move across the classroom, that kid. Quit sitting next to him. He wants to fail, he can fail, not my son. My dad was fired up. I think Tim finished the class with an A. <laughs> That's who these guys are, though. They're the, they're the Leroy Birches of algebra. 
They're the Leroy Birches of suffering. Poor Leroy Birch. Maybe God saved him now. He's living a wonderful life. Watch, he's probably a rocket scientist at NASA. But that, these guys, like, how dare they? What is their major malfunction that they are so bold to speak into his suffering? Just because someone thinks they're an expert and they have something helpful to say doesn't make it the case. People who don't get suffering and grief trying to speak into it and process it is like a clanging gong and a symbol of 1 Corinthians 13. It lacks love and tenderness. These people don't have the wisdom to open their mouths to Job, but they sure have a lot to say to Job. It's a marker of how much others can add to the pain of suffering instead of relieving suffering. One of the things that's become crystal clear with Job is, is he, he talks about it, and even at the end of this, he'll talk about his physical and um, the relational, the loss of his children. Like All those things are painful, but the loudest pain for him right now are these miserable friends and others. And so we have, we have Job being mocked by worthless people, but then, but then we have suffering that's just obvious. Verses 15 through 18. He regard, he's going to return to the depths of his sorrow and his pain. Um, he says it this way, terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind. My prosperity has passed away like God. I mean, it's been fleeting. All this that you've worked so hard to build up has just been gone in a moment. It, it is the, the stock market crash kind of mentality of all the stuff that I've worked so hard to, to get is gone in a moment. Have you ever had that? You ever poured your life into something? And you got nothing to show for it. Respect and honor are so hard, right? Like somebody might graciously give you the benefit of the doubt and respect you. But earning respect is hard work. It takes a long time and it's just gone. Job's like everything I've worked for is gone. The word terrors there has been used throughout the book uh, to play on the terrors of the wicked, the, terror, the king of terrors, Satan, who punishes. It's like nightmares, Proverbs 28.1 talks about the wicked fleeing that no one pursues. It's a terrifying fear. Job says, terrors are turned upon me. It's a, it's a little mystifying in one sense because what else does Job have to lose? And so it's, it's more like the terror of the moment and the terror of no hope. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind. My prosperity is passed away like a cloud. Verse 16, now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones. The pain that gnaws me takes no rest. It's, it's physical pain at night. Uh, it's waking up in the middle of the night. I remember Betty Sanders talking to her one time, her telling me about waking up at 3 in the morning to take more pain medicine. Because if she didn't, uh, she'd be in such pain in the morning she couldn't move to get ready to come to church. And, and so it seems for Job, it's the night terrors, it's nightmares. Um, it seems also, though, it's the physical pain at night. It's all of it together. With great force, my garment is defigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. It, it's kind of a strange phrasing here. In the Hebrew, um, what it means is like, maybe you've had this experience. I had this happen to me, I don't know, a couple months ago. Um, it's kind of like tossing and turning at night and my shirt had like gotten tangled around and you're like, ah, like somebody's strangling you, right? That seems to be what he's describing. It's like he's wrapped up at night and like all of a sudden he's all wrapped up in the sheets and they're like strangling, they're suffocating. <gasps> I can't breathe kind of moment. And so, man, when people are suffering, when they're in deep and profound grief, <clears throat> They want anything to relieve that grief, right? That, that's why lots of people will turn to things like alcohol or drugs or um, to pleasures, sex, distraction, relationships. But the most common food, the most common one is sleep. I just want to sleep. I just want a time to go by without me waking up. And even his sleep is being robbed from him. And, and so... When you would look at Job, his suffering is so obvious. 
You know, it's one thing when you're going about your day and you run across somebody, maybe you're in deep hurt, maybe you're just, maybe you're just struggling emotionally with something, a trial in your life, a, a painful thing that's happened, and you run across somebody that doesn't know you. And they're like super chipper. Um, when my wife had, had surgery last year, one time I swung by uh, Starbucks to get a coffee and um, was driving down. It was, the, it was when we were still waiting for the results, whether she was going to have cancer or lymph nodes. And I drove through, and when I was getting my coffee, the person said, boy, it's a great day to be alive, isn't it? They were just being sweet and kind. Praise God. Lots of times baristas are not. That they, they did nothing wrong. But internally, I'll be honest with you, my re response was, no, not really. Not today. Right? You know, I, I was, was I wrong? Yes. Was I struggling? Like, yes. Thank you for not judging me. Right? But my suffering wasn't obvious. And so she wasn't, she was just trying to be kind. And that, that's all it was. Right? When you're a raw nerve, even a cool breeze is painful. But it's a whole other thing when someone's suffering is obvious and you can't be kind to them. That's a whole other ballgame, isn't it? Like, that's, that's nonsensical. Does that make any sense to you? Like, if you saw something like Job is covered in boils, scraping maggots off his skin, wrapped in rags... Like, if that's all you saw, his suffering is obvious. Why would you add to it? His suffering is just there for everyone to see. Day and night drift together into one consuming existence of pain and torment, and they can't even be kind to him. Then the rest of the chapter is just the rejection. And the rejection, though, is ultimately not from these people, although what it happens here is Job has an inner voice, and because we all have one. And in our inner voice, we're saying things to ourselves all the time. And what Job is saying to himself is God hates you, he doesn't love you, he's abandoned you, he's rejected you. Now, we don't have to guess at that because for the 29 chapters, he's told us that's what he's thinking. But this is what, and so all their voice is doing is affirming to him what his inner voice is already saying. But the ultimate rejection he experiences, he feels like, is from God. God has cast me into the mire. I've become like dust and ashes, verse 19. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it. You toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death, and to the house appointed for all living Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? I just want to pause in that moment. Again, it's the second time Job has done this. One of Job's torments was thinking about the scene when his children's home collapsed on them. Because what he's picturing here is if Job had been there and there was a hand poking out of the rubble, what would Job the dad have done? Anything to get to his son or daughter. And what Job is saying is, I'm literally being crushed under the rubble of life, God. And you won't extend your hand to help me. Did, I, did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. When I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I'm a brother of jackals, a companion of ostriches. These are worthless animals they drove out from the midst of them. My skin turns black and falls from me. My bones burn with heat. My leer is turned to mourning and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. My songs, he's saying, are nothing but minor key songs. What Job doesn't understand, the climax is kind of there in verses 20 through 23, is he doesn't understand God seeming to ignore him. And he cites this as God cruelly punishing him for nothing that he has done. 
He contrasts this with the way he has dealt with people. And so what Job can't comprehend is if I saw someone this broken, I helped them. God, why won't you help me? If I had been there when my children were being crushed under the rubble, I would have dug them out. I'm being crushed under the rubble of life. Why won't you help me? It is so hard to read and see his grief and his suffering and the utter confusion of it all. We all want our suffering to matter. We want there to be some value. We want death to be redeemed into life like some kind of spiritual organ donor. Make it count, God. And so Job has been so clear. But what he points us to is Christ. There's an amazing verse in the book of James that references Job. James 5.11. It says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast you have heard of the steadfastness of job and you have seen the purpose of the lord how the lord is compassionate and merciful and once again i want to pause here and remind you all that job has just said was not a loss of steadfastness that continues to scramble the eggs of my brain as I work through Job. I'm not, I'm not faulting any pastor, teacher, preacher, or book that I've read before my 48 years. But prior to the last few years, if you'd have asked me, is it ever right to complain to God? I'd have said, mm, probably not. You want, you want to know what makes him angry? Grumbling and complaining. And there's a sense in which that's true. You want to make God mad? Grumble and complain. Like, he makes it very clear, the Old Testament, nation of Israel, grumbling, complaining, you're, do, you're toast. We're done. But there was no category in my mind and in my heart for a right complaint to God that draws you closer to him. Biblical lament. I'm so thankful for the journey God has me on. And I'm so thankful because I'm pretty sure I had read this part of Job before. If someone had just tried to describe it, I said, well, that's not steadfast. But, but the biblical authors, they don't count this against Job. Your confusion is not the same as sin. Questioning is not the same as wickedness. Now, can you question in a wrong way? Obviously. Can you complain in a wrong way? Obviously. But we're told of the steadfastness, and furthermore, what James says about his steadfastness is he says it showed us the purposes of God. Job's suffering showed us God's purposes, particularly two words, his compassion and his mercy. How in the world does Job's suffering show us compassion and mercy? Because the reality is Job doesn't receive a lot of compassion and mercy from anybody, does he? And yet the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I think this chapter is really helpful for us, chapter 30, because Job shows the purposes of God and his compassion and mercy by his innocent suffering, which points forward to the innocent redemptive suffering of Jesus, whereby anyone can receive the compassion and mercy of God. The very first book of the Bible ever written, the book of Job, is intended to point us to Christ. We can see, we can see Jesus all through it. First of all, he's, worked, he's mocked by the worthless. Uh, for 14 verses, Job talks about the mockery of these guys. We hear in the Messianic Psalms of the mockery that Jesus endured. Psalm 22, 6 through 8. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Mark's gospel has this whole mockery motif. It goes on and on and on, and, and, and the religious people mock Jesus. The soldiers mock Jesus. They mock and slap Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. They mock Jesus in Pilate's courtyard. They mock Jesus while he's on the cross. And we can argue that all those people are worthless mockers of Jesus, but there's none more worthless than the criminals that he's hung in between. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha! You who destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. These worthless, worthless people, spiritually arrogant 
people who relied on their own strength and power. In the case of the criminals, blind and proud, listen to me, they are you and me. We are the ones who would mock Christ. Our sin mocks God as though he is not just. He tells us, do you not know that whatever man sows, that will he also reap? Don't mock God. that mean that means when you and i live in persistent sinfulness and we act like there's no consequence to our sinfulness we make a mockery of god's justice we mock it we say it's pointless you're powerless you're not just you're not holy you're not righteous i have nothing to be afraid of our pride mocks god as though we should be in charge you know who should really be running the show is me i got a better plan on this thing I know what I should do. Why should I be asking God? Why should I seek his word about what he would have me to do? Why should I conform my life to Christ and, and understand that he's called me to love God and love others? Why should I take up my cross and follow him as Jesus said? Why should I come to Jesus weary and heavy laden that I might have rest? Why should I trust him with my, why should I, I know better? Our pride, our pride mocks God. Our sin mocks God. Our pride mocks God. Our rebellion mocks God as though he is not ruler of all. In Romans, he tells the, the Jews that you are mistaking God's kindness. His kindness and his grace are intended to lead you to repentance. But instead, we spend it like it's money to be spent. So we take God's grace and his kindness. We take his patience with us. And we assume then that he doesn't care or he's not going to really punish or he's not just or he's not holy. So I just keep doing whatever I want to do. Our rebellion mocks God. Our lukewarmness mocks God. Our resistance to live in the reality that we are poor and blind and naked. And instead, think that we are rich. We have need of nothing. I can see all things going on around me. I am, I am the epitome of wisdom and insight. I understand all my pain and my suffering and the circumstances of my life. I'm clothed in righteous robes and so I have respect and power. And he says, no, you have none of that. You're poor and blind and naked. And the reality is when we think that we are rich and that we have need of nothing and that we have all the wisdom we need and, and we've got what we need from Jesus uh, so we can move on with our life and I'm respected and I've got all this stuff, the reality is what that always results in is spiritual lukewarmness. We're neither hot nor cold. We're not the hot drink that can warm you to the core on a cold day. And we're not the cool drink that can slate your thirst and satisfy you in the hot heat of the summer. We are lukewarm. We are good for nothing. We mock God. I can do life without him. The idols of this world satisfy me. You know, it's, it's when you talk apologetics or theologically with people and they, they wrestle with this concept about um, us, our own sin. And every one of us in this room is born a sinner. The Bible makes that clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans we're all wicked. And the fact of the matter is, if you go all the way back to the garden, you look at Adam and Eve. Have you ever looked at the story of Adam and Eve in the garden? And you, you've, I don't know about your heart. Has your heart ever been tempted? Boy, boy, if I was Eve, I would not have taken that fruit. Or, or have you ever thought, you know, if I had had Eve offer me that fruit, I never would have eaten it. I would have obeyed God. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. I wouldn't, and neither would you. We'd have munched down on that as quick as they did. We are sinful people. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are these mockers. That's hard to wrap our mind around. It's hard to wrap our mind around that we would have stood on the road spitting on Jesus or beating Jesus or hanging on the cross next to him, rightly suffering the consequences of our own criminal actions and mock him. But we would have. We are the worthless mockers in our sin. Job's suffering is obvious. Jesus' suffering is for our healing. The people who mocked Job thought that he deserved what he got. People who don't understand puzzling pain will blame the sufferer. That's what they do with Job. Well, Job, if you would just do this, fix this, be this, then you wouldn't be hurting anymore and God would restore you. There is a kind of pain that can happen in a person's life. It's puzzling pain. They don't deserve it. They haven't done anything to get it and they can't fix it. 
People looked at Jesus and they assumed the same thing because they didn't have a category for innocent suffering, puzzling pain. When they look at Jesus, they assume he deserves what he's getting. And so they have no category for understanding his suffering he did not deserve. He had done no wrong. He had never wronged anyone. All he had ever done was preach truth, speak truth, raise the dead, heal people, and they're killing him for it. And the, the straw that broke the camel's back was when he raised Lazarus from the dead. They knew there's no stopping him if he has that kind of power. We've got to kill this guy. And so they're killing Jesus, and they're mocking him as they do it, and they view his suffering as his fault. Isaiah actually describes us in our lost state this way in Isaiah 53, 4 through 5. Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him or considered him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, we look at Jesus and say, well, he must have gotten what he had coming. But instead, Isaiah says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Every one of us is born a sinner. Every one of us deserves the consequences of sin. The wages of sin are is death. He will punish sin with eternal death. There's, there's no way around it. It's an uncomfortable truth. And yet it's an uncomfortable truth that we want for some people. Like, I'm not trying to be hard. But I mean, if you pick the evil of the evil, Pol Pot, Stalin, Hitler, you're like, you know what? I hope there's a just God who will punish them. Even more recent, Dahmer, 17 men and boys he killed. Some say he got saved before he died. I don't know. You want justice, though. You want God to be just. And so if he gives him mercy because he gets saved, praise God. If he didn't actually get saved and it was just another line to get better treatment, then God be just. You know what we don't know, right? God be just. We want justice. We want justice for everyone and anyone but us. And yet... Jesus' suffering on that cross wasn't because God was looking at him saying, let me punish my son for his wickedness. No, he was suffering for your wickedness. He was on the cross for your pain and my pain. He was suffering griefs and sorrows so that you can be healed. And so his suffering is for our healing, but his suffering culminates in ultimate rejection. He was rejected for our acceptance. The greatest pain that Job felt was what? The rejection of God. Now, of course, we know that Job is not rejected of God, but this is how Job feels. His friend has become his enemy. God is out to get me. This is the ultimate destiny of the lost person, to be the enemy of God, to be rejected of him because of our sin. Listen, you're sitting here this morning. That moment has not come for you yet, but there will come a day, there will come a day where every one of us will stand before God and he will judge us. He will judge us for our wickedness, for our sinfulness, for our unrighteousness. Listen, I was, I was nine years old when Christ called me to himself. God broke me over my disobedience, my selfishness, my anger. It's not like I was out like smoking pot and drinking a six-pack. I was nine. But I saw my sinfulness. It's not a matter of are you as sinful as somebody else or are you, are you even as sinful as you possibly could be? See, lots of times lost people will convince themselves, well, I'm not that bad because they, they either compare themselves with someone else or they think of all the times they don't do sinful things. But, but we're told in the Bible, in the book of James, if you break one part of the law, you violate the whole law. You're a sinner. You're born a sinner. You live out sinfulness. Every one of us in this room has lied. Every one of us in this room has been lazy. Every one of us in this room has been selfish. We know that we're sinners. And he will punish that sin. And that day will come and he will send people away. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Into everlasting darkness. 
It is a terrifying prospect. I remember as this nine-year-old boy being convinced and convicted, I was going to die and go to spend eternity in hell. And I thought you had to get saved in church. I thought that's how it worked. I, I, I didn't know any better. And so I was terrified that whole week. I ran home from school, literally, my little backpack, all the way to Edmondson Heights Elementary School, uh, all the way to 5922 Baltimore Street. I just bolted. something like a, like a half mile, three quarters of a mile away. And just ran all the way home, hoping hoping my family was there because I knew Jesus was going to come back and I was terrified I'd miss it. It was like the worst week of my life. Then I had to sit through Sunday school and children's church Sunday morning. Had to wait till Sunday night. Pastor, uh, I still remember his name, B. Lloyd Womack, he, he baptized me. He preached. I don't even know what he preached on. I just waited for the altar call. I didn't wait for somebody else. I don't think it was running. Now, I know theologically I probably got saved much earlier in the week. Because salvation isn't about kneeling down on an altar. Salvation is about understanding that you're a wicked sinner and you need a savior. And saying, oh God, save me. I'm going to follow you. Whatever you have me to do, that's what I'm going to do. I can't save myself. I'm not righteous. I'm not good enough. But Jesus was pure and perfect. He died on the cross for me. And he says, welcome in. And he puts his spirit in you and begins this glorious transforming work that exists throughout the rest of your life. It's a wonderful moment. But for us to be accepted, Jesus was rejected. God loves us so deeply and he stands ready to judge the sinner. And yet, and yet he loves us so deeply, and so he still wants to judge the sinner. What, do I, what is he going to do? He sends his son to live a sinless, perfect life when we can't, to die willingly for us. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. And all of this culminates in the father turning his face from Jesus at the cross in some mind-boggling moment and rejecting him. So that when you and I repent of our sin, when we confess that we're sinners and say, I'm turning from my life of sin, I'm going to follow you so that we can experience his acceptance. Matthew 11, Jesus said, these are Jesus' words. Jesus said this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We are called joint heirs with Jesus. We are called his brothers and sisters. We are adopted as children. We are a new people in Christ. All of this because God turned his face from the son in the climactic moment of Jesus bearing your sin on the cross so that when you turn to God, he doesn't turn from you. What does that lead us to? Well, he takes the very people mocking him and turns them into compassionate Ministers, we started referencing Hebrews 12 too, for the joy that was set before Jesus that fueled his endurance through the pain. I just want to close by us thinking about the impact of that in a very particular way. Let's point our hearts to another connecting truth that we see in Hebrews. We can own that we are the mockers of Christ. We are the people who have stood and shouted, crucify him. We are the soldiers. We are the criminals. Job describes you and I in our sin. Look back in Job chapter 30, verses 12 and 13. I want to just point one truth here to help our hearts. Verse 12, he says, On my right hand the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. But when you consider the ministry of Jesus, so that's what cruel mockers do. And Hebrews 12 says, For the joy... That was before him, Job, Jesus endures the cross. Then later in Hebrews, it calls us to do this. Lift up drooping hands, strengthen weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Mockers create stumbling blocks for the suffering and the hurting. Redeemed people make plain paths out of compassion for people to walk on. Mockers... Make pain worse. Ministers of compassion come with truth, the balm of Gilead, binding up wounds, anointing heads with oil, and directing hearts to Jesus. So that when they're fatigued, when they are hurting, they keep running. Speak truth 
that makes plain paths for the hurting. Truths like what? Truths that God has not forsaken them. God does not despise their pain. He understands their wounds. He is for their healing. I just want to call to you, you who were once mockers, to start speaking loving truth to the hurting. But secondarily, speak truth that rescues other mockers. Darren read this passage, Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. Think about that. So you got all this uneven ground. Every valley's lifted up. Every mountain's made low. For what? The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places to a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This saw its first and really ultimate climactic fulfillment in John the Baptist, where he goes and he begins preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus shows up and he basically says, repent, the kingdom has arrived in him. But that ministry that saw its first fulfillment in John goes on to this day. As we go forth and we proclaim the one who suffered for sin, as we proclaim the one who caused the hurting and the dead to himself, that they might be healed and live, we are continuing the ministry of preparing the way for the Lord. Oh, mocker, you who, like me, would have yelled, crucify him. You who, like me, once mocked God with our pride and our sin, our rebellion and our resistance. Make a plain path for those that are wandering, the struggling, the sinner to come to Jesus. When Jenny Manor was getting married, she asked a man she had never met in person if he would walk her down the aisle for a wedding. So he came the day before his before wedding, met her, and then walked her down the aisle. She had never met him before, but in his chest beat the heart of her dad that she had lost 10 years before. Jenny's dad wasn't there, but his heart was. In Jesus' redemptive suffering, he has made us kinds of spiritual organ donors. Where through his death, he has put his heart in us. And he has called us to take that in compassion and love and tenderness to the believer that's hurting, to help make plain paths and strengthen twisted knees, and, and also to the lost who are wandering in the valleys and living in the caves of their sin, and to call them to the plains of walking with Jesus. He has put us on mission to walk with his heart for the hurting, for the sin cursed and for the suffering so that they too may be healed. There is so much sorrow in the cross, the undeserved suffering of Jesus, yet it is by the cross we are rescued. Joy and sorrow meet there. Pain and rejoicing, sadness and laughter. Redemptive suffering turns cruel mockers like me and like you into compassionate ministers of the gospel.